The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. You are a visionary. You have a vision. You just need to create it and bring it to life. Welcome to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with your host, Kate Ebner. Our program will be an hour of inspiration from leaders who are making their visions happen and will set you on the path to having a big impact through your leadership and the life you really want. Now here's your host, Kate Ebner. Good morning. We have a special show for you this morning. So often we've been talking about looking to the future and seeing, you know, developing a vision of not only the future that you see, but the one you really would like to create. Um, today we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to actually look to the past. And my guest, Don Quayle, is a man who was a key part of creating a vision that we are all experiencing today in its actuality. So what I want to do is give us a chance to learn from someone who had a vision made it happen, um, and can reflect on that whole experience. The year 1970, the opportunity to create a national public radio network that brought high-quality original radio programs to listeners across the entire nation. Don Quayle had already played a key role in building a radio network that linked the major cities of the Northeast when he agreed to the job of president of the newborn national public radio station. Don is with us this morning, and he's going to bring us back to 1970 and even earlier than that to help us understand the context for that vision that became the National Public Radio. So welcome this morning, Don. Kate, good to be with you. Well, I'm so glad to have you here. I think this is um, such a a special opportunity for us. As I said before, it's so, um, so rare to get a chance to reflect with somebody about something that was uh, sort of a twinkle in your eye, so to speak, 40 years ago, um, and that's come to to be in such a way as our, our national public radio system has. And Don, your career story is one that seems to capture kind of a turning point in American history. You're part of developing the first, um, the infrastructure that linked radio na- regionally first and then nationally. And then you were part of the successful effort to pass the Public Broadcasting Act of 1967, which established public television and radio for our nation. Then you went on to to serve as the first president of National Public Radio in its founding years from 1970 to 1973. And I see you as one of a group of visionaries who saw something bigger and better for our nation. And I'd love to start off today by having you tell us how your career got started and sort of how you got into this whole thing. Well, I seem to have been involved in a number of firsts. Uh, I was in at the time that it was appropriate because there was a beginning growth and I just grew along with the the movement. I started when I was in college and a couple of friends and I decided to start a radio station at the university, Ohio at Utah State University in Logan, Utah. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was a part-time announcer on a local commercial station at that time, so I had some experience with what a radio station was supposed to do. So we started a station there, and it was the first station in in, uh, Utah, non-commercial, 
educational radio. And uh, from there, after a couple of years in the armed services, I went on to Ohio State because Ohio State was offering a combined degree in the doctoral program for radio, television, and theater. And theater was a love of my life uh, interest. After I got to Ohio State, and by that time, by the way, I had three children, so I had a family to support, I learned that the $1,800 assistantship in the theater department was not going to be quite enough. So I auditioned for a job as an announcer on WOSU, which I did get. That paid $3,600. And <laughs> this being 1957, that was enough for a family of five to live on. Wow. That was his perspective. Ohio State, at Ohio State for four years, I went from an announcer to the general manager of the station. Mm -hmm. And then I attended a seminar at Madison, Wisconsin, at the University of Wisconsin, of people involved with educational radio and television. This was organized by the then national organization called the National Association of Educational Broadcasters. And at that seminar, I remember making a real plea that educational radio would never have the resources to provide a quality program service for listeners unless you tied them all together and could share resources. Then hmm. each and every individual station would be able to present a quality program, a high-quality program of interest to its members. Was this a radical idea at the time? Well, it was to the extent that nobody knew quite how to get the money to make that happen. And when that did happen, and when I made that statement, the general manager of WGBH in Boston, a real visionary named Hartford Gunn, asked me to come to Boston, not only to run WGBH radio, but to try to make that happen by building a regional network that would cover all of New England, New York State, Pennsylvania, and as far south as Washington, D.C. So I did that in 1960. I went to Boston to work on that um, as a worthwhile effort. Now, one of the problems that we ran into was that there was no station in Washington, D.C. With connections, we did learn that American University in Washington would be interested in building a station. We met with the president of American University, who was Hearst Anderson at that time, mm -hmm. and I put a new transmitter on the air in Boston, another one on the air in Amherst, Massachusetts, so I could relay my Boston signal to Albany, New York, where there was a station, and then I sold our existing transmitter, which, by the way, was manufactured by Edwin Armstrong, the inventor of FM, and I sold that to American University so they could start WAMU. 
and that's when that station went on the air in 1961. Now, you may remember a guy by the name of John F. Kennedy. Yes. He was elected president of the United States, and a guy that I knew quite well at MIT went uh, to Washington as his science advisor. He had to sell certain stocks to avoid a conflict of interest, and I asked him for the money in order to buy or rent lines between the stations in Washington, Philadelphia, New York, and Boston. He gave us that money. We interconnected and became a live regional radio network called Educational Radio Network. And we had stations through uh, Maine, New Hampshire, uh, Vermont, New York State, Pennsylvania, and up and down uh, the the coast to Washington, D.C. So that was the beginning of my real uh, network experience. When you achieved that that connectivity on the the north in the northeast, was there a sense at that time that okay, we did it, we're done? Or what what happened next? Well, what happened at that time? Unfortunately, television created uh, most of the attention at that time, and radio started to slip kind of into the back, and. The Ford Foundation, which was at that time giving us great support for the educational radio network, and by the way, I had moved to National Educational Television in New York as the director of that regional network. We put the R back into (laughs) N-E-T-R-C, and the Ford Foundation in 1963 decided they didn't want to have anything more to do with radio. They wanted to focus everything on television, and they withdrew the funds. So the interconnected educational radio network came to an end in the fall of 1963. Our last live broadcast, as a matter of fact, was coverage of the March on Washington. You know, John, I know a program on the air at that time called Kaleidoscope, and that, in a way, was kind of a forerunner of all things considered. I want to stop here for a second and ask you to tell us a little bit more about that final broadcast that was the the March on Washington. I I'm a, I know that that was a controversial broadcast and a, a big deal for you to, to air. Tell us that story. There I made one of my two biggest mistakes of my professional career. <laughs> I knew that the Ford Foundation was withdrawing the money. I felt, as did everybody else, that coverage of this momentous event of Martin Luther King and the March on Washington was critical. It should be covered. It should be enjoyed by all who worked for the Educational Radio Network. I wanted all of the members of the staff of all of the stations to have and share that experience. I, therefore, stayed where I was in Michigan on vacation with a friend of mine from NET and let everybody else enjoy the experience of that live broadcast of the March on Washington, and I was not there. That was a mistake. Why was that a mistake? Because I should have been there. I should have participated. I wanted to participate. I wanted to experience 
that entire event. And as you know, it was a milestone in the history of the United States, and I wanted to share it. But I wanted that more for the people who worked on the radio network than I wanted it for myself. And 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 right after that, um, you went. You know, it, it sounds like that was a sort of a critical decision to go forward with that broadcast, knowing that the funding would be would be pulled. Um, tell us, how did that resolve? Well, the funding was pulled for the radio network, and after that, the stations had some joint cooperation amongst themselves. And what they did, there was no longer an interconnection between Washington and Boston. And so they exchanged um, programs by audio tape. Uh, the other parts of the network, the parts in New England, stayed together because they were using off-air relay. So the Boston signal would be picked up in New Hampshire and then relayed on up further and into Vermont. That continued. But the interconnected network uh, which made it possible to have a live host of a program that stopped. And the production of the magazine program Kaleidoscope uh, stopped because there was no money to really pay the costs of that. On a personal level, I changed and went into television where I had been before, and I started working for, uh, I was at NET at that time, and I worked in the station relations department there. A few months after that happened, I was asked to move back to Boston and to become the executive director of the television regional network, which was called EEN, Eastern mm -hmm. Educational Network. So mm -hmm. that's when I became connected with all of the stations there. But in addition to New England and South, as far as Washington was concerned, we had other stations in Chicago, San Francisco, and Los Angeles. Programs from EEN went to those stations on videotape. So I worked for four years in television as director of the Eastern Educational Network. And I know that that um, that both ERN and EEN were very strong. Um, they helped make the argument later on for a national network. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, really want to hear you tell us about the, the development of that national network. We'll be right back. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. Each week, Jimmy Gould brings you the stories and the people that you want to hear about. 
Tune in to A Current Life to hear about the journey to success, how our guests became the people they are today, and the highs and lows they experienced along the way. Each hour will leave you inspired and entertained as Jimmy gets up close and personal with every week's guest and shares ideas you can identify with and apply to your own life. A Current Life with Jimmy Gould airs Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. Welcome back. This is Kate, and I'm speaking with Don Quayle, one of the prime movers behind the creation of first a regional, then a national public radio network, and he was also the first president of NPR in 1970. Right now, we're sort of making our way toward 1970. Um, We're we're sort of in the mid-60s, right, Don? And we're um, talking about um, the end of funding, actually, for the educational radio network and your move to television. And what happened next? Well, I moved over to be the director of the Eastern Educational Network, and we were operating mostly with uh, off-air relay and mailing of videotapes. And again, we had membership in, in the large cities across the country. At the time, there was a big movement to solve the long-range funding problem for non-commercial educational broadcasting. The Carnegie Commission was supported by the Carnegie uh, Foundation, and that commission, chaired um, by um, the chancellor of um, MIT, Jim Killian, studied the entire problem of how to fund public or then non-commercial educational broadcasting for the future. They came up with the conclusion that the only way it could be done with continual reliance on the funding was if it was using federal funds. And they advocated the passing of legislation that would make that possible. Lyndon Johnson was a key supporter of that. Bill Moyers, by the way, was assistant to Lyndon Johnson at the time. And the Public Broadcasting Act, of 1967 was passed in November of that year. That made it possible for federal funds to come into public broadcasting. The problem that it posed was how to make sure that no federal interference came into the programming decisions of public broadcasting to ensure that that wouldn't happen. It allowed for the creation of a private corporation called the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, which would receive federal money and distribute that money to the public television and radio system that would then go ahead and program the national scene. In addition, it would be a buffer between 
the programming decisions made by public broadcasting and the federal government because you didn't want to have federal interference in that programming. And by the way, just as a as an offside note, the original legislation was the Public Television Act. Mm-hmm. Remember I said that people had become enthralled with television and radio was getting some short changed. Well, right. people, radio managers in uh, Michigan and Wisconsin and assisted a little bit by myself did get that changed and had it reworded as the Public Broadcasting Act of 1967 so that radio was uh, totally enclosed. And it, when the corporation was established, Frank Pace was the first chairman of the board. By the way, the board was presidentially appointed and Senate confirmed. Frank mm-hmm. Pace was the first president, and he asked the guy that had worked for him for a long time in the private sector at General Dynamics to take over and kind of get this new thing started, this new corporation. That guy's name was Ward Chamberlain, a Hmm. wonderful man who had a long career then in public broadcasting and showed signs of leadership that were just absolutely extraordinary. As he looked around and putting staff together to get this new corporation going, he wanted, because there was legislation urging the establishment of a network. He wanted someone who could advise on how to build a network or why a network was uh, important. At that point, uh, I had become identified, I guess, because of my advocacy for networking um, as someone who had experience and some expertise in that. Mm -hmm. In the fall... Of 69, Ward asked me to come down to New York and to consult on uh, the systems development of uh, putting together a national network. Now, the short of it is that we went ahead with that. Uh, We decided that um, the interconnection system for public television uh, should be run by an organization that would not produce programs but would distribute and promote those programs, the reason for that being that there were very strong producers of television programs in other cities and you didn't want a conflict of interest in any one of those producers running the network because they would schedule their own programs in the prime times. And Mm -hmm. we would do the same for radio with the exception that radio did not have any strong national producers, so a radio network was created that could produce and distribute and promote uh, public radio programs, and that was NPR. Uh, I mentioned Hartford Gunn as one of the real visionaries of our system. He was hired to be the president and the first president of PBS, the public broadcasting system. Mm -hmm. And at that time, then later on, uh, a few months later, I was hired because I had been hired by uh, CPB full-time and I left Boston and had moved to New York. I was then hired by the board of directors that had been established for NPR 
and I was hired to be president of NPR beginning in September of uh, 1970. One anecdote here that I want to share. When we had the Educational Radio Network, I mentioned that we had a magazine program, a drive-time magazine program called Kaleidoscope. Mm-hmm. To a certain extent, that was modeled after a magazine program that we had on the air at Ohio State when I was there called On the Way Home. So On the Way Home preceded Kaleidoscope, preceded All Things Considered. When, we, when I was hired uh, by the board of directors of NPR, one of the members of that board by the name of Bill Seamering who was manager of the Buffalo, New York station, had written a mission statement for NPR. Carl Schmidt, one of the other members from Wisconsin, asked Bill to read that mission statement. He did. And then Carl turned to me and said, if you come aboard as president of this organization, can you make that mission statement work? And I responded, well, if the people or the man who wrote that statement comes aboard with me as director of programming, <laughs> then I think we could. <laughs> so I hired the director of programming right on the spot. Excellent. That's a great story. That's a, that's, you know, you bring it all to life um, by telling us about the people who were there and the ways that they contributed. And well, it was, you know, that, it's the people that made the whole thing. That was, yeah. that was key. It, it it does. I mean, it's it's so clear as you're describing that that there were many visionaries and lots of talent and lots of creativity and and um, solutions being generated from many people all working together to make this thing happen. Um, what would you say, Don, was the original vision of National Public Radio? You described sort of the purpose was to um, produce, distribute, and promote um, quality programming across the nation what was the vision like when you when you were back in you know late late 1960s 1970 picturing what you were building what did you see well the main thing was to provide a program service that would respect the listener respect the intelligence of the listener and the discretion of the listener uh that was to my mind uh, ultimate above everything else. We had the opportunity to be funded, to bring in talented people, to provide the best that we could for an audience out there. And as long as we respected the listener's intelligence and uh, discretion, I thought we could provide something that would be very useful. Now, in terms of a program service, it goes all the way through public affairs, cultural affairs, children's programming, but you have to start someplace. When we got together, and mind you, I had the luxury of picking. We had to get on with it and do it fast. So I had to pick people to have the various jobs that would be um, existing at that, that time. And I, I picked as my vice president, uh, the guy that I had started the radio station with in Logan, Utah, Lee Frischnick. Hmm. Um, and that goes back a long way. But I was able to pick people that I knew could do the job that was 
being required. Charles Herbis came on as general counsel. I knew him in Philadelphia. Uh, Bill Seamering, I've already mentioned, and Jim Barrett was the public information director from New York. I knew him in New York. I used to commute with him on bus from Franklin mm-hmm. Lakes, New Jersey, into New York City to go to work. We put together an extraordinary group of individuals who believed the same thing that I did, and that is respect for the listener. Let's provide them with all of the information we can give them to enable them to make the important decisions in their daily lives. And that, I think, guided us uh, throughout that. Now, the vision, the future, uh, where we go from there, it would take care of itself because if you provided something that was useful, that was wanted, that was needed, then it would grow and the ability to continue to do that uh, would come uh, from somewhere. Wow. That's, you know, so I, I hear you describe that vision and really trusting that the value and the, um, you know, the usefulness, the, the meaningfulness of that vision would, as you said, take care of itself, sort of the field of dreams. If we build it, then they will come. That's, that's right. <laughs> and we're going to take a break in just a second, but for those listening, I want to just prov- provide this contrast. In 1970, um, when, when NPR was founded, um, Don, I think you told me that you had 43 people in a budget of $2.5 million with just 73 qualified stations. But today, <laughs> let's contrast, um, we have 850 people on staff, a budget of $160 million and over 900 qualified stations nationally. So talk about a vision coming to life. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to learn more about this extraordinary vision. We'll be right back. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Are you a business innovator or are you just sitting on the sidelines? Tune in every week for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Host Bonnie D. Graham talks to a cross-section of the movers and shakers who are leading by example. They will share best practices and innovative ideas to keep you thinking and moving along with the best. Join us for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP, Wednesday mornings at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you are looking for both an inside and insightful look at what you're not seeing in media coverage of today's legal, business, and policy battles, tune into In the Court of Public Opinion with host Jim Haggerty. What happens in the public arena affects us all. Whether you're following the latest high-profile court case, corporate crisis, or are just interested in government and policy, be sure to tune in every Tuesday at 12 noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. The witnesses are ready and the jury seated. So join us for our next session in the Court of Public Opinion. Hey, did you know Voice America has partnered with the KidStar Network to expand their reach through Voice America Kids? Voice America Kids will feature talk radio for kids, by kids, along with special event programming and live broadcasts. Each program is conveniently archived for on-demand listening at any time. Please check our archives for the latest events and happenings on voiceamericakids.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. Welcome back. This morning, we're exploring a vision that already came to life and is still in the process of unfolding. I'm speaking with Don Quayle, one of the key leaders whose involvement in the 1960s and 70s led to the Public Broadcasting Act of 1967 and the founding of National Public Radio. And I'm understating his his contribution by only mentioning those two things. We're talking about what it was like to see the future of radio back then and how that vision has played out. And, you know, Don, before the break, we talked a little bit about sort of the before and the after, you know, where NPR is today. I'd like to go back to the beginning. And at the time that you launched, you hired a Cracker Jack team. Tell us about some of those early hires and what you were looking for in that team and, and how that came together. Well, people. That's what makes an organization and the creativity that they bring to bear, the intelligence uh, and the integrity that they bring to bear. Uh, That's what I was looking for when I put together the executive staff. Uh, When you do that, and when your hires are quality, they too will attract quality. Of course, Bill Seamering hired the people in the programming department. Uh, There was one time when I didn't interfere, but I did make a suggestion (laughs) for a person that Bill should hire. I mentioned Kaleidoscope. Mm-hmm. the Educational Radio Network. The producer of Kaleidoscope was a woman that I had hired from American University, a young woman by the name of Susan Stamberg. Well, mm-hmm. after we got NPR started, Susan called me up one day and said, I want to work for you. I said, good, let's have lunch. So Bill Seamering and I and Susan went to lunch. We talked all the way through lunch, and as we got to... Uh, our finish, I got I paid the check, and we got up to leave, and Susan said, now, wait a minute. I want to work for you. I said, well, you do. You start on Monday. <laughs> oh, she said, okay. And Susan has been at NPR ever since and is still there. I mean, that was in 1970. <laughs> wow. And she has been... Uh, a backbone of NPR. She mm-hmm. and her uh, grandmother's recipes. Mm-hmm. And Linda Wertheimer and mm-hmm. Nina Totenberg and mm-hmm. Jeff Rosenberg. And I mean, the list goes on and on in terms of the quality of people that have been attracted to NPR. Now, this is a very important point. When you provide a quality service and you have the opportunity to add to that because of additional funds that are coming in, you can attract quality people. And that's what happened with NPR, not only in terms of the programming staff, but administrative staff as well. The succeeding presidents to me were the most important in terms of the growth of NPR and the quality and the service that it has maintained and the growth that it's realized going, I would say, much beyond what I and our uh, contemporaries could see at the beginning. I had no idea it could grow into the wonderful organization that is it is today. 
but I'm so pleased that it did. Hmm. You know, I, I think that um, one of your great strengths as a leader, Don, as, we, as I listen and reflect on all that you're telling us, was your ability to bring great people together to solve problems in what I know you call a cooperative way. And I'm wondering if you could share a story about um, how you and your staff came together to solve some problems creatively and cooperatively at that time. I know that there was a lot of, you know, it's sounding, as I'm listening to it, it's sounding so exciting and also like one thing led to another. But I know that there were many challenges and some real um, sort of head-scratching challenges that you all came together to work on. We had meetings almost constantly. And I tried to have in our physical uh, environment large rooms where the entire staff could meet. Now, the entire staff of NPR couldn't meet anywhere today in, in their headquarters, but at that time we did. And just to have everybody together to talk about any problems, to get the best ideas about the solutions to those problems, in that way it was a cooperative effort. Uh, mm-hmm. Our programming head, Bill Seamering, used to typify that by saying, Let's hold hands and have a race. Everybody <laughs> together, everybody's good ideas being put forward, from which then you could sub- subtract and, and build and put together a, uh, a program service and a cooperative effort. The other thing that I did as far as NPR was concerned, because I knew the internal politics of public broadcasting that were going on, I knew of the struggles that were taking place at that time between CPB and PBS. Um, I knew that there was a lot of stuff getting out and around in the press. Again, with these full staff meetings, I tried to keep every individual staff member as informed as to what was happening uh, in the politics of the situation uh, so that they would feel content and able to put forth their ideas to solve any kinds of these problems. People, I told you about um, On the Way Home. On the Way Home was put together as a magazine program by the guy who was then my news director at Columbus, Ohio. I brought him east to be manager of the station uh, in Massachusetts. Uh, I then brought him down to New York and to be manager of head up the radio division of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. His name was Al Holson, and genius when it comes to what ought to be done for public radio. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I can't emphasize enough how important it is that organizations select people with qualities that are needed, and then those people establish a quality product that then attracts additional people of those same kinds of qualities. But it's, it's really the creativity of the people mm-hmm. that makes it work. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I see so often in the consulting work I do, um, organizations that struggle is sort of hire really good people, but um, don't necessarily create the environment that allows those people to thrive and, and really contribute. And I'm curious, how did you bring out the best in the people you hired? And once they were hired, how did you how did you create those conditions for success? 
Well, what we did here with uh, NPR is that we got the best facilities that we could. Uh, we listened to what our people said they needed and tried to provide those, and we had a fairly uh, good budget with which uh, to work and do that. But we made it possible for them to intermix with the entire community, with them to associate with organizations that they were going to do stories about, for them to bring other people that they knew into the mix for participation on programs for conversation, for them to go out into the community and get feedback to find out what was happening and to create a program service that would address those things that were happening. Um, the coordination of that within the uh, group for public broadcasting and within the physical facilities of NPR, uh, that was handled again um, in order to provide the staff, in order to provide the programmers with the basic support that they needed, uh, with the encouragement that they needed in order to create the programs that would go on the air. Mm-hmm. So, so that you make a real connection between the, the giving them the facilities and the resources that they needed in order to have conditions that would allow them to be successful, as well as the encouragement and the, the support ongoing that would, again, allow them to, be, to contribute at, at their highest level. That kind of support is essential if you're going to get the best that those kinds of people have to offer. Don, this was such a passionate endeavor. Even listening to you talk about it now, there's just so, it was such an exciting and passionate time. And I wonder, what was it like to be there then? You know, I, I, what was it like to be in the midst oh, of all was, of this? It was wonderful. It was wonderful. <laughs> it was so exciting. Uh, we were all doing something new. We were all realizing a dream that we had all had, that it was coming true. And to see it come true, to see the growth of the stations around the area. When you talk about qualified stations, the corporation put together some qualifications that a station had to have in order to receive federal money. Those qualifications were very low. They had to be on the air every day. Mm-hmm. They had to have a staff of three people. They had to have uh, a budget of uh, X amount. And it, as I say, in the beginning, there were only 73 stations in the country that could meet those qualifications. And by the way, when I talk about the corporation's qualifications, NPR adopted those same criteria for membership in NPR. Mm-hmm. But if there were qualified stations in two cities, or two stations in the city, both of them would be members. We never operated on a uh, basis of exclusivity. Interesting. So it was, it was um, you were saying, it was just such a, a passionate and exciting time. And, um, you know, one thing that strikes me about it is that there was two kinds of leadership you were bringing. One was... Um, with others, I know, you were building that infrastructure so that this whole vision could happen. And then on the other hand, you were actually leading in organizations and putting together teams and working at the level of program and, you know, the content of what was going to go out on that infrastructure. Um, do you make the distinction that I just made between leading the building and leading the delivery? 
I think that there is a distinction there, but mostly what has happened or what was happening at that time is that people were learning their way. They were experimenting. They had the freedom to do different kinds of things. Uh, they were innovative, and they had the support and the encouragement of their uh, leadership team uh, behind them. The other thing that we did as we got started, all things considered, the magazine, Drive Time Magazine program was not the first thing on the air. The first thing on the air that we did were um, recorded coverages of the protests against the Vietnam War that were happening downtown in uh, in Washington at that time, and those were just fed out to stations for them to use as they wished. The other thing that happened at that time was that we recorded all of the performance of the Los Angeles Philharmonic and distributed that by audio tape. This was before uh, we were interconnected. But the first program, the first regularly scheduled program that we put together, a drive-time magazine program, 90 minutes long, all things considered. We put that on the air on uh, May 3rd of 1971. That was just less than a year after NPR was actually created. May 3rd of 1971 it also happened to be my oldest daughter's birthday. So uh. that's how I can remember the date and I can remember her uh, birthdays. Well, um, we're going to take a break, Don, and when we come back, we're, I want to hear just a little bit more about uh, about that moment, and also um, let's talk about technology today and what's what's changed since then. So we'll be right, right. back. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. Are you an entrepreneur that wants to achieve more? Not just in it for profit, but to do work you find meaningful that adds more value to more people in more ways? Listen for Be More, Achieve More, inspiration for the entrepreneurial mind. With host Chris Cooper, you'll hear from successful achievers from around the world with the passion and experience to offer invaluable guidance. These people are making a difference and will help give you the motivation and insight to achieve more. Be More, Achieve More can be heard live Fridays at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. What does a visual workplace mean to you? How does it contribute to operational excellence? And what steps do you take to put it powerfully in place? Listen to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense to find out. Each week, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, shares tools and strategies to help you make the workplace speak at a glance without saying a word. Learn to work safer, faster, better, and at far less cost no matter what business you're in. Tune in to The Visual Workplace every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. You're 
listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. Welcome back. My guest this morning is Don Quayle, a passionate leader who made a big contribution to the establishment of public radio and served as the first president of NPR. Um, Don and I were talking right before the break about um, about the experience of being part of this passionate um, endeavor, you know, group of visionaries really coming together to build and make make this happen. And then, of course, the higher mission that NPR had to bring high quality programming across the nation, that programming that really respects the listener. So, as we go into our our final minutes together, um, Donna, I'm curious. Today, you know, even as we're talking, we're using a very different technology than you um, probably ever imagined in the, <laughs> back in 1970. All of the technology is different from what I knew then. <laughs> Can you ex- reflect for a moment upon um, what, you know, where, where radio is today um, versus what you imagined back in 1970 and what you think about that? Well, radio is in your hip pocket. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can download this show and yes. put it on your iPod and carry it with you while you jog through the park. Uh, <laughs> radio is uh, ubiquitous. It's everywhere. And you can carry it in your uh, car. You can listen to it there. You can listen to it on your iPod. Uh, you can put it on any number of devices and take with you. You can listen to it when you want to. You don't have to be there right at the time that the broadcast is taking place, as was the case um, before when we got NPR started. But the technology has really changed so much. My grandson is the sports anchor for Channel 4 here uh, in Washington, D.C. He was showing me the little devices on which he records now television excerpts of sports events and how easy that is to record them, to put them on, to edit them. The technology has gone way beyond anything that I could imagine at the time that we were getting started. I was impressed with the technology that we had at that time. The fact that I could call up my uh, parents in Logan, Utah and say, you know, you've had a time delay, so your station is going to broadcast this a little bit later. Listen to it now, and here's what's on. Now, hmm. you know, they just tune that in, they record it, they carry it with them, whatever. Yes. Well, you know, you to me, it's, it looks like you know you were you were sort of a, a part of a continuum, and really bringing that whole that whole system together and then we can just sort of look at the continuum of um you know evolving it evolving advancements and, and innovation to the point that we've got radio in our pocket um That's right. you know what advice do you have don for people today who are who are maybe part of a passionate endeavor working to build something important for the future you know what advice do you have from your experience well i would think that the main thing is to look at your fellow man to look at your associate uh, look at the people around you, and if you're in a position to be able to add people to that group, look for the quality and the kind of people that you know can provide the service. People. 
and the quality of people that you have around you is what makes things work. It's what makes things valuable, and it provides the kind of service that other people will want to share, other people will want to know, and it's the creativity that you can't really do all yourself. It's the creativity in the associates that you gather around you that you can harness and put together in a way that makes it useful to a listener. But above all, above all, you have to respect the discretion and the intelligence of that listener. That is the most important thing in terms of any mass or communications media, the intelligence and the caring and the values of your audience. That's where it all resides. Mm. Thank you. I think that's such a valuable contribution, um, certainly to this show and to our listeners, but also just to um, to stay with that mission, you know, that you, you really worked for and have created. Are you happy with where NPR is today? Oh, I'm delighted. I am absolutely amazed at what NPR has done, at what it's become. I am indebted to all of the presidents and all of the people that have worked at NPR because I get credit for it all. <laughs> you know, I was there at the beginning. But what it has become, what it is, is a, I think, testimony to the vision and the integrity of the initial staff that was there, some of whom are still there. Susan and Linda and Nina <laughs> are, mm-hmm. are still there and still working, and we're still getting the benefit of their creativity. So, yes, I'm very pleased. I wonder, in closing, we just have a couple of minutes left on, but is there a particular highlight of your career that you would like to share with us, something that's particularly meaningful to you? Well, I think the most important highlight in my career was NPR. Uh, I left NPR and went back to kind of work on some of the internal political uh, issues that were going on in public broadcasting, and I never really achieved the kind of exhilaration or satisfaction that I did um, after uh, NPR that I did when I was at NPR. That's the... Uh, the highlight of my career, I think. And the one thing that I would say, just in terms of how you value people, James Killian, Chancellor of MIT uh, in, in Boston, uh, was one of the individuals that I respect more than anybody else that I have ever met. He chaired the Carnegie Commission. He chaired the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. He had a vision, and he had integrity, and he had the influence that was necessary to make it work. Knowing Jim Killian probably was the highlight of my career, as well as NPR. Well, you you, you just made a testimonial, really, to the power of, of being a visionary leader. So, uh, Don, I want to thank you so much for joining me today on Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life. I'm listening to you talk about the establishment of National Public Radio has been fascinating. Um, you've reminded me that behind every big idea are real people working together to make things happen. And I think you've also shown us that when you're in the middle of something big, 
there are setbacks and it can be pretty hard to tell on a daily basis how it's all going to come out. Um, I think it's heartening for those listening who might be tackling some big ideas right now and are right in the thick of it. Um, so Don, it's been, you've been truly inspiring and I think, um, have given us just so much to think about. It has been truly an honor to have you on the show today. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Kate. It's been very enjoyable. All of these recollections take me way back and they're fun to think of. Well, they're fun to think of and they, they, they set the stage for all of us. Um, and certainly you have, I'm guessing, just as much passion and energy for the subject today that you did then. <laughs> I so to. thank you very much for sharing with us. Thank have you. a great week. Bye. Bye bye. We sincerely hope you've enjoyed hearing from leaders who are using vision to create an inspiring future. Please join host Kate Ebner for another edition of Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Business Channel. Meanwhile, visit www.nebocompany.com for more tips on bringing your own vision to life. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio.